this is Tech Refactored. I'm your host, Gus Hurwitz, the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center at the University of Nebraska. Today, we're joined by Leon Zhu. He's an assistant professor in the Supply Chain Management and Analytics Department at the College of Business here at the University of Nebraska. And his current research interest resides in two main fields, pharmaceutical supply chain management and data-driven operations management. Now, astute listeners might keep in mind or might remember that this is the, the second time that we've spoken to someone about supply chain management issues in the last few episodes. And that's because they're fun and interesting and fascinating. And I always learn when I talk to folks who specialize in this area. So I'm really looking forward to uh, talking uh, to Leon today. Leon, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. So let, let's just start uh, a little biographical. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what your research is? Great. So my name is Liang Shu. I graduated from Penn State University with my PhD in supply chain management and joined uh, UNL since then uh, in 2019. During my PhD study, I started to look into the pharmaceutical supply chain because this is so fascinating. Everything we see in, the, in, in our life, in our daily life, there is a supply chain behind it, including the drugs we purchase. Okay. And in U.S., there is a lot of complicated issues right now that's going on, like opioid crisis, like high drug prices, and they all find root cause in their supply chain. And I trying to understand, trying to propose uh, policy suggestions for those uh, difficult issues by looking into their supply chain. So when we're thinking about the, the pharmaceutical supply chain generally, uh, how is it different from ordinary supply chain issues. Um, a, a lot of people probably are thinking in their mind, stuff stuck on containers on boats off of the coast of California right now when we're thinking supply chain. Um, is that all that we're dealing with when we're talking about pharmaceuticals? Well, that's an interesting question. Is a quote from some professionals in the pharmaceutical industry. What they said that is pharmaceutical is not a box of bolts and nuts. Okay, it's quite different from the typical things we see because they require very high standards in centenation and production complexity is also a huge, uh, huge thing. Uh, also about there is limited sh uh, shelf life on those products, particularly for say injectables. Yeah, that's why we see a lot of shortages, some essential drugs that's on shortages that are injectables. And reading some of your work, I know that you touch a lot on uh, the pipeline of pharmaceuticals as well, the FDA regulatory issues and how we actually develop these. Can you say anything just generally how that fits into the supply chain set of issues? Yes, sure. Uh, I think it's it's very important that we know how drug is developed and approved because they are very vital to save lives. So FDA need to make sure the drug that they prove is safe and effective. And in fact, this has been proved very important in the history of a few drugs that later proved, say, in European country, later proved to be very deadly. So FDA is proud of being rigorous and looking into the safety and effectiveness of each drug. But that's actually very difficult to do if you think about this, because 
we have to run clinical trials, phase one, two, three, so that we can accumulate enough data and evidence to show the safety and efficacy of a drug. And this process takes over a decade, usually on average about 10 to 12 years to finish this clinical trial process, and it's very risky. So the scientists, they, they try different molecules, and then they test on small animals, and then test on human. And during this process, probably only one over 5,000 molecule can make to the, to the market. So it's very risky, takes a long time, and it takes a lot of also capital to develop drugs. So I, I love every aspect of this. I, I love anything that's interdisciplinary. <laughs> and uh, uh, you're a, an, an economist at a business school, and uh, I'm a lawyer, so I yes. love regulation. And we're talking about uh, supply chains and economics and regulation and pharmaceutical development. So biosciences, it's all there together, which I guess coming back to uh, the, the biographical uh, side of things. How did you end up working on the pharmaceutical side of supply chains? The, oh, there is an interesting story behind this. So when I was first um, doing my PhD, my formal advisor, she was diagnosed with brain cancer, unfortunately. Mm, uh, sorry to hear. Yeah. At that time, she is, she is, she is a very strong mind person. So she's very positive she she's very actively trying to seek treatments okay but at, at that time there is one drug that is in clinical trial stage as i mentioned it, it takes decades to develop a drug so it, it's very often the drugs that may be promising can st still in the development stage and the patients could not get access so she was uh, very curious. Then we get interested in looking into this process, trying to understand why it takes so long. Is there a better way or better mechanism that we can shorten this process so patients can have uh, can have sh can, can have more readily access to those life saving drugs? And then all kind of get started. You know, trying to get connected to it to FDA to different uh, manufacturer, trying to understand. This I, have to ask, how did things turn out for your advisor? Uh, so my advisor, eventually, she passed away after two years fighting with cancer. She also tried to come to different parts of the world because some of the world, the, the drug may be more readily accessed compared to U.S. But eventually, brain cancer is just is very difficult. Um, obviously, very sorry to hear uh, that. And it... it uh, demonstrates that these are real-world issues. Yes. Uh, supply yes. chains aren't just these artificial constructs that something about the economy and maybe Chairman Fed Powell is doing. No, they're, they're humans yes. involved in, in a very real way um, with yes. every part of the uh, supply chain. What does your research tell us about pharmaceutical supply chains and supply chains more generally? So particularly looking at the drug development process, which I just mentioned takes over decades, uh, we're trying to look at one innovative mechanism come up with by FDA called accelerated approval process. So the idea is just to test the drug on a so-called surrogate measure 
and then trying to predict whether this drug is going to be effective or not instead of observing the full efficacy evidence, right? So based on that surrogate measure, the FDA will give early approval. And then once the company get an early approval, of course, they can start selling the drug. Patients can start having access to these drugs and they can help patients. But meanwhile, FDA don't want to compromise the safety and efficacy evidence of the drug. So the company are required to continue to do post-market clinical trial to study whether the drug is really effective. To give an example, for example, you are developing a cancer treatments. So typically, if you want to measure how effective cancer treatment is, you have to measure the, say, two-year or five-year survival rate. Right? By taking this drug, how many person can, can, can survive after, say, two years or five years? Okay. And if you think about this, this is difficult to measure. It takes that amount of time to observe. And usually it needs a large sample because the benefit you get is not going to be very big. So you need a very large sample to get a statistic meaningful result. And that takes time. So instead of measuring the survival rate, you can measure how whether the drug can prevent the growth of the tumor. So they called uh, the tumor-free uh, rate or tumor progression-free uh, rate. Right? So that's a very good indicator. If the tumor stops growing, that's a very good indicator that this drug is working. Right? So that's called surrogate measure. So for many diseases, there are surrogate measures like this, which can be more readily observed. So, so they use this surrogate to speed up this approval process. Well, that sounds good. This sounds very clever. Yeah, I'm, uh, ideas, I'm, I'm right? sitting here thinking. So you've got this this surrogate, and it shows you the drug's working. Why do we need anything more? Let, oh. Let's just go get it to market. So what, why why don't we just do that? That's a good question because it doesn't guarantee the the clinical benefit or the survival benefit. Okay, it's co- we call correlation may not be causality. Okay, so you need a sound evidence showing the actual clinical benefit. And there is some example that drugs works on the surrogate, but do not bring the clinical benefit. Eventually, the drug has, be, has to be withdrawn. So I, I guess one of the uh, more common or intuitively understandable circumstances where we see this is where we don't necessarily understand the mechanism by which a disease or an illness causes harm, but we understand some of its symptoms. So it's possible what the drug is doing is it's treating a symptom without treating the underlying cause, and we don't understand that. So if we focus on that that symptom, that surrogate, we're, we're measuring the wrong thing. Yes, that's a great way to put it, yes. So, but as you can imagine, this brain a moral hazard problem. Once the drug is on the market, right, if I'm a developer, I lose the incentive to continue to study the efficacy of the drug. So why should I do that? I can sell my drug, right? I can, if I'm doing this, I can, doing this post-market study, I need to spend more money and there is risk, right? So the result may turn out to be bad. So, oh, I, I love that. So I, I, I just have to uh, uh, give my, my restatement of what you just said uh, uh, to make sure I'm understanding it. With this accelerated approval process, 
uh, there's kind of a, a quid pro quo. We, the FDA, are going to allow you, the drug manufacturer, to start marketing this drug. But in order to do that, you have to keep doing the studies and demonstrate after some period of time, or I guess at in some way demonstrate, keep doing the research to show this is safe and effective. But you used a great term there, a moral hazard. Mm-hmm. If there's a likelihood that the result of those studies are going to show that this drug doesn't actually work, the drug company doesn't want to do the studies. And if a significant portion of these studies turn out that way, that's going to be a really strong moral hazard. Yes, you're right. So there are some statistics that is striking. I think one third of the of the the post-market study are either delayed or not completed. There are some extreme example that some post-market study are delayed for 8 to 12 years, never get started. And that's the problem we're trying to solve. That's the, the thing. We, we're trying to induce the compliance with the post-market study. Mm-hmm. And we talk with FDA, and the main issue to the problem is the lack of enforceability or lack of teeth for the FDA. So mm-hmm. FDA have in approval letters, they have made it clear right, in say next five years, you have to complete the study. Otherwise your drug will be withdrawn from the market. Mm-hmm. Right, that's pretty fair, right? The, the, the problem is FDA does not have that teeth to withdraw drugs. They don't have that enforceability to enforce that penalty. And in many cases, once the drug is on the market, the company would have many different ways to either lobby the patients, like there are many patient groups who lobby FDA saying, this drug is working great on us. Why, why should you withdraw these drugs? Right. So that's really a problem of enforceability. You don't, you cannot enforce the penalty of withdrawing the drug. So. Do do you know why that is from the lawyer asking the economist for legal questions now? Uh, do, do you know uh, why it is that the FDA uh, can't enforce that? They they have the the power to uh, uh, pull drugs from the market. Is this a, a question of legal authority or a political uh, will or just pragmatics uh, that they wouldn't be able to? I think it's more of a trade-off between risk and excess. So FDA do have the authority, but they still have to trade off the risk and access, right? So if patients, they are the many patients who are on this medicine and there is no evidence, no study showing this, this drug is bad mm-hmm. and withdrawing that drug will be, it will be hard. Oh, so that, that's a, a great, I mean, we just need to make this uh, clear. If the company hasn't done the study, it hasn't shown the drug doesn't work. It also hasn't shown that it does work. So the FDA, if they withdraw it, they are risking withdrawing approval of a drug that actually does work. And you'll have a lot of incentives there. You'll have patient groups who are saying, yeah, this works for us, or it might not work, but we're desperate. We, We really need this. You probably have insurance companies who are saying, yeah, this is an expensive drug. We love it because we get to charge employers. Consumers never see the cost. So we're able to uh, uh, get money actually by insuring patients who are taking this drug. So uh, the, the incentives just are horribly misaligned there. Yes. 
Yeah, so we, we also propose to FDA for such post-market study, maybe it's better to that the, say, government or like NIH can lead such study. And or even before you give them approval, you should have all the proposal, you have all the clinical site ready for the post-market study. Then you, as a condition to give that approval. So the, the idea is either there's some competitive leader in the market, the NIH, who's able to do the study. So if the company doesn't do it on their own, they know someone else is going to do it. Or they have to have made some credible commitments and incurred some sunk costs before that initial approval comes through where they're, they're going to need to be positioned to start doing those studies. Yes. And also, FDA should have more enforceability well we we went to fda we talked to the fda and right now they just have one person who would uh, periodically review F- the post-market study progress and there's just not enough attention on on that so most of the attention of FDA actually fda is very short stuffed most of the attention is to get the drug out, they have, they receive a lot of application, a lot of materials. So a lot of those stuff is looking on how to finish those review and get a drug approved. The less stuff on the post-market study. So they also mentioned they should have more people actively tracking the progress of post-market study and sending notification to manufacture if they are not on the, on the track. We are talking with Leon Zhu from the University of Nebraska about pharmaceutical supply chain issues. We will be back with some more of this discussion in a moment. Hi, listeners. I'm Lysander Marquez, and I'm one of the producers of Tech Refactored. I hope you're enjoying this episode of our show. One of my favorite things about being one of the producers of Tech Refactored is coming up with episode ideas and meeting all of our amazing guests. We especially love it when we get audience suggestions. Do you have an idea for Tech Refactored? Is there some thorny tech issue you'd love to hear us break down? Visit our website or tweet us at UNL underscore NGTC to submit your ideas to the show. And don't forget, the best way to help us continue making content like this episode is word of mouth. So ask your friends if they have an idea too. Now, back to this episode of Tech Refactored. And we are back talking with Leon Zhu from the University of Nebraska about pharmaceutical issues and uh, supply chain management. And there, there's a obvious question they need to ask, an obvious topic uh, that we uh, should get into, which is, of course, COVID-19 and the pandemic. We have seen all sorts of pharmaceutical supply chain issues here, some of which seem possibly directly to relate to your work uh, with the um, EUAs, the emergency approvals for vaccines, somewhat similar in concept to the accelerated approval uh, mechanism, I guess, maybe. That's a question for you. Um, and also just uh, uh, challenges of distributing vaccines, especially within the country and overseas, uh, shipping them on boats and all that stuff. So I'll, I'll just use that as a prompt to ask if you have reflections on aspects of your research that we see playing out in uh, the current situation. I'm glad you mentioned about EUA, Emergency Using Act. 
I guess it's mostly when you have a state of emergency like this, you would uh, trigger the EUA. And we study so like vaccine, vaccine and some of the treatments that are in this emergency use. And of course, after this, they have to go through the regular approval process if you continue to sell on, on the market. But back to the COVID lighting, I think the biggest impact just like many other regular products like toilet paper or other things, we have shortages. And one of the reasons is the supply chain issues. Many of the products, if we including pharmaceuticals, medical supply actually made overseas in China or India, I think that's the biggest two market where we source those medical supply from. So with COVID-19, with so many congestion in the ports, so we are not getting some of those medicines. Uh, I have a friend, physician friend, he once told me uh, a story. So he is working in a hospital and then the medical staff hand him a dose of sedation and told him, this is the last one. Be careful to use it. Make sure you use for a good purpose. He said, well, what do you mean by the last one? He said, that's the last units in the whole hospital. And of course, the hospital staff and administration people, they trying their best to, to manage this and resolve this so that to avoid impact patient cares. But that's, that's very real, the, short, the drug shortages. So uh, a question about that and the, the inter, interplay with supply chain issues in the healthcare industry and regulation so much of the healthcare industry is heavily regulated, especially things like uh, the size of doses and the proper use of things like PCR tests or any sort of testing regime. Over the last two years, I've seen occasional discussion of things like when you're, when you have a limited number of COVID tests, the one thing that you could do is mix samples from 15 patients into a single test to identify whether one of those patients is infected. And that tells you, okay, this, this cohort we have an issue with, we need to test more uh, carefully as a way of effectively managing the supply of uh, COVID tests. But that's all heavily regulated. And I, I guess I, I'm curious if you have thoughts on the adaptability of supply chains to changing circumstances when they are heavily regulated. Well, that's a very good question. I think that not probably not uh, the example I'm going to use is probably not the texting, but the vaccination. I think uh, in the very beginning, uh, when vaccination vaccine is still in the limited supply, and people are discussing. Uh, should we give two dose first or everybody get the first dose and then we're going to give the second dose? I think that's in many cases should be a scientific question depending on which way is more effective. And definitely when their supply chain issue comes in a like capacity limited, there should be an optimal uh, way of doing things. And I believe there are many research has been done on how to test, right? Should we do a batch test? Should we do random testing? I think, uh, when we have, when we first encounter COVID-19 and UNL is trying to 
organize a task force to organize the best or to fi- figure out the best testing strategy. At that time, is should we have you know everyone should do the test or should we do random tests? And of course, is subject to how many testing capacity we have. Mm-hmm. And definitely by doing uh, this kind of operation research type of work, we can find a better solution. And, and again, it, it just emphasizes the importance of uh, these interdisciplinary efforts and understanding because if you if you're coming from the purely scientific side you're going to think okay this this is clinically speaking the best way to deliver these doses but if the supply chain can't manage that then it's not so you you need to understand what the supply chain is capable of and uh, uh, the regulations also put limits on how we're going to deal with that. So understanding what the law will allow and what the flexi- what flexibility might be in the law is necessary on both the supply chain and the medical side to making informed decisions. So it's even more complex than merely complex set of issues. Yes. The, the good thing is the COVID lightning put everybody in aligned. Essentially, we are thinking uh, with the same goal. So it's, it's much easier to to. It's much easy. It's much easy to align everybody together with, with such an emergency like this. So I, I do want to come to that that idea. What lessons are we learning, and how does that affect future work? But before we get to uh, that, I, I know you're uh, interested as well in hospital operations management and things that we're seeing um, with staffing shortages at hospitals and the like. What are you seeing, and how are you thinking about this? Well, I think we probably need a better kind of emergency. Uh, plan for this type of situation because right now we are in a really bad situation of staff shortages, especially nurses. And we are putting the nurses working in a very hard situation. And many of them are very stressed. They are risking their health, even their health of their family. So many of them has to are forced to quit their job and so that caused shortages. And on the other hand, you have uh, a surge in the demand. So that makes the situation really bad. And the hospital, they have to hire some uh, part-time nurses uh, to fill the gap. And if you know that the part-time nurses, they are paid much, much better than the regular nurses. So that creates a really weird incentive that many people choose to quit and being a part-time nurses. So the incentive is, is, is very misaligned for, for dealing with this type of situation. Yeah, and I, I've been thinking about this as well from the what comes next perspective, because as, as you describe there's a, a mis, misaligned incentive here for current nurses to leave their current jobs and go to the part-time and mobile moving from state to state market where they can make a whole lot of money. And hopefully at some point in the near future, we're going to be past the pandemic or uh, past this type of response to the pandemic, at which point staffing levels will need to return to normal. And we're going to have a bounce back effect where uh, the um, uh, long-term stable employment 
uh, of nurses is going to be dramatically uh, short-staffed. And we're going to have this large cohort of nurses who've been become used to these higher salaries. And that's going to create curious labor dynamics. We're actually seeing there, there's a case, I think it's in Wisconsin, that was just uh, decided or an injunction just came into play. Very weird case. I don't know all the details, but one medical group hired basically all the staff from another hospital offering to pay them a lot more money. And the hospital went to court saying, you, it's an unfair trade practice for you to steal all of our employees like this. Um, it actually got an injunction preventing them, uh, the employees from starting work. Weird case. But what I'm thinking about is the company that uh, swooped in and hired away all the staff paying a lot of money. They're responding to the current situation. In another two years, they're going to probably just close up shop. And all of these employees that they stole away will be out of jobs. And that's not a good situation. How we respond to these dynamics in labor supply is another aspect uh, that I, I don't think many people are thinking about right now. It's definitely great if we can bring different people from different fields, like law, like human resources, hospital administration, people to discuss and think about uh, policy to prevent the, these, yeah. So what what's uh, next for you and your work? What projects are you working on right now? I'm actually, these days, I'm actually very interested on drug pricing. So also drug shortages, because these are very difficult policy issues that has a deep impact on the care delivery in U.S., and specifically, if you think about drug price, it's just so expensive, become so unaffordable for the U.S. And, and again, it has its causes in the supply chain because there are many middlemen in the supply chain that is not from the manufacturer wholesaler to pharmacy, but there are like pharmacy benefit manager who make the formulary, who design the benefit, and they will take profit from the drug price. And again, the way they get paid is by percent of the sales of the drug. And also the hospital, they they also reimbursed by the percent of the average sales price of the drug. So it seems that everybody would benefit from a higher drug price except patients, right? So that's why there being some policies have been discussed to make the drug price more transparent, to eliminate rebate, to prevent the inflation of drug price during the supply chain. I think that's a very fascinating uh, topics. So I... I don't know if you'll know anything about this, but are you familiar with GoodRx? And if so, can you explain it to me? Uh, I use GoodRx. And it all started from the story, the the founder of the company who tried to buy medicine and couldn't find the information uh, of drug price. So he mm -hmm. called the pharmacy in the nearby region and then put up websites showing this is how much it costs at, at each pharmacy. And that's because we don't have price transparency on the, on the things. And all, in addition to the price you pay, there is also a lot of manufacturer coupon because manufacturer try to encourage people from using their drugs. Sometimes 
it might be a high-priced drug if without coupon, the patients would not choose it or choosing a similar version or generic version. So they provide coupon to that. And by using, I think that's a good way that we can, we, we can get price discount from this broken system. So is GoodRx just finding prices that already exist? And uh, it's really just about uh, facilitating price transparency that otherwise consumers don't have access to? Yes, it's more like a transition period. Before we get to a good system, uh, I think that's what the GoodRx says. It's, it's a solution to this broken system. It's not a final solution. Mm-hmm. I almost think of GoodRx as a non-pharmacy benefit manager or something like outside of the PBM system helping you find what the prices are that you can get so you you can make your purchasing decisions independent from PBMs and insurance. Okay, well, this is a a fascinating uh, set of uh, topics and uh, discussion. Um, Any uh, closing thoughts that you want to, to leave us with? Well, I think pharmaceutical supply chain is very relevant to people because we, well, everyone in our life at some point, you either you or your family probably would get sick. And at that moment, we probably start to think those issues. But in fact, the many people who are suffering from medical issues and they really need a better healthcare system. And I think actively participate on this type of topic, like join the Tech Refactory podcast, is a great way to learn those topics mm-hmm. and trying to use our vote to influence some of those policy uh, decisions. Yeah, I think for better and obviously in many ways worse, there's a silver lining to a lot of what we've seen over the last uh, 24 months or so in terms of people understanding these issues and understanding supply chains. They they matter. And the way that we structure our economy and where we place manufacturing capacities and delays that we might put in place, that all matters. And it's becoming more visible to more people in a way that I think in the long run, hopefully will give us a more resilient economy. Yeah. So this is the best time to be a supply chain. (laughs) Yes, Yes, indeed it is. Well, uh, Leon, this has been a real pleasure. Uh, Thank you for joining us. And to our listeners, uh, I've been your host, Gus Hurwitz. Thank you as well for joining us on this episode of Tech Refactored. If you want to learn more about what we're doing here at the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center, or just want to submit an idea for a future episode, you can go to our website at ngtc.unl.edu, or you can follow us on Twitter at UNL underscore NGTC. If you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. That's a supply chain thing. Our show is produced by Elspeth Magilton and Lysandra Marquez, and Colin McCarthy created and recorded our theme music. Until next time, you have my accelerated approval.